This week, Mallinckrodt debtors file amended RSA reflecting first lien deal. Just Energy enters restructuring in Canada and the U.S. Intelsat relocation payments dispute push to confirmation. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. Later, Peter Washkowitz, head of America's Covenants, will review the new agent clawback provisions added to credit agreements apparently in response to Citi's mistaken transfers to Revlon lenders. It's Friday, March 11th. The Mallinckrodt debtors on Wednesday morning filed an amended RSA reflecting a deal with the ad hoc group of first lien lenders holding approximately $1.3 billion of outstanding first lien term loans. To secure their consent, the debtors have agreed to, at their option, either exchange the first lien term loans for new first lien term loans in an amount equal to the currently outstanding amount, less a $114 million 2020 excess cash flow or ECF settlement payment, plus accrued and unpaid interest, plus a, quote, term loan exit payment, or repay the first lien term loans in full in cash in an amount equal to the outstanding amount, plus the 2020 ECF payment, plus accrued and unpaid interest, plus the term loan exit payment. The first lien group had previously asserted there was, quote, no scenario in which the plan contemplated by the debtor's original RSA with governmental opioid claimants which proposed to reinstate their claims, was, quote, remotely feasible. The terms of the new first lien term loans will include an increase in LIBOR margin of 2.5%, extension of the maturity to the earlier of September 30th, 2027, or five and three quarters years after the plan effective date, and removal of all financial maintenance covenants. Mallinckrodt asserts that the RSA provides for a financial restructuring that would reduce the company's total debt by approximately $1.3 billion, excluding the 2020 ECF sweep to first lien term loan lenders noted above. Just Energy Group, an Ontario-based electricity provider, filed restructuring proceedings in Canada and the U.S. on Tuesday to, quote, provide stability as the company restructures its financial obligations, quote, due to the impact of unprecedented cold weather in Texas back in February and corresponding charges from the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT. The company notes that such charges, while still subject to adjustment, are, quote, over $250 million U.S. dollars. In Canada, the company obtained an initial order Tuesday from the Ontario Superior Court of Justice under the Company's Creditors Arrangement Act, or CCAA, which stays proceedings against the company until March 19th and may be extended by the court. In the United States, the company filed a Chapter 15 petition in the Southern District of Texas for recognition of the CCA proceeding as a foreign main proceeding. It obtained provisional relief against creditor actions at a hearing in the Chapter 15 cases on Tuesday pending recognition of the CCAA proceeding. The Chapter 15 recognition hearing has been scheduled for for April 2nd, pardon me, at 12 p.m. Eastern with responses or objections due March 30th at 5 p.m. ET. Regarding the company's relations with ERCOT, the provisional relief order entered by Judge Marvin Isger in the Chapter 15 cases states that, quote, the court finds that any payments made to ERCOT are made subject to all of the debtor's rights to contest those payments and all rights to receive a refund or credit as allowed by applicable law. 
In addition, Judge Isger ruled that Section 525 of the Bankruptcy Code, which prohibits a governmental unit from suspending or revoking a license based upon a party's status as a debtor in a bankruptcy case or for non-payment of certain debts, would apply and that the Bankruptcy Court would retain exclusive jurisdiction to hear any requests for relief under 525. Just announced that it has obtained $125 million of dip financing from entities affiliated with PIMCO, one of the company's major existing investors and term loan lenders. The National Bank of Canada has also agreed as administrative agent under the September 2020 credit agreement to support the CCAA and Chapter 15 filings and stand still, not taking any action to enforce their rights and remedies under the credit agreement. In a press release announcing the filings, the company said that, quote, its largest commodity suppliers have also agreed to continue to support the company with commodity supply and ISO services. Specifically, the company discloses that Shell and BP have reached RSAs with the company under which they would, quote, temporarily waive and forbear from exercising termination rights. Judge Keith Phillips on Wednesday agreed with the IntelSat debtors that intercompany claims on $4.87 billion in anticipated C-band 5G, quote, accelerated relocation payments from the U.S. FCC should be considered in connection with confirmation rather than via adversary proceedings as proposed by the ad hoc group of parent debtor convertible note holders and former C-band alliance member SES Americom. The convertible note holder group and SCS had filed motions seeking standing to bring suits claiming ownership of the payments on behalf of Intelsat SA and Intelsat US, respectively. Those motions were originally scheduled for hearing on March 17th, but last week the debtors filed a motion arguing that the plan, which allocates the bulk of their enterprise value to Intelsat Jackson creditors, includes a settlement of those debtors' claims to the relocation payments, and that the reasonableness of that settlement should be decided at a confirmation hearing on June 14th rather than the aforementioned sought adversary proceedings. Adversary proceedings, the judge noted, do not involve all stakeholders, but only the parties. Other stakeholders could intervene, he conceded, but he added, I shudder to think how many intervention motions I would see if the adversaries were to go forward. On Monday evening, the PROMISA Oversight Board filed a second amended joint plan of adjustment and DS that has, quote, substantial support from creditors with holders of over $13 billion or more than 70% of bonds having signed on to the GO and Public Buildings Authority plan support agreement. The second amended plan amends the prior plan of adjustment filed in February 2020 and largely reflects the terms of the February 2021 PSA. The plan filed Monday also expands the scope of the Contingent Value Instruments, or CVIs, to address certain clawback claims in addition to the, quote, general obligation CVIs provided for the PSA. During Wednesday's omnibus hearing in PR's Title III cases, Brian Rosen of Proskauer for the Promisa Oversight Board informed the court that a stipulation among the Oversight Board Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or FAF, and ERS bondholders setting forth the, quote, proposed understanding of treatment for ERS bonds would not take effect until after a due diligence period expired on March 25th. Rosen expressed confidence that a third amended plan of adjustment would be filed thereafter and that more than 70% of ERS bondholders would ultimately agree to the plan. Top red stories this week included... Glass Mountain Lenders hire Perella Weinberg as financial advisor. American and A Advantage subsidiary to issue $5 billion in notes, $2.5 billion term loan, proceeds to repay U.S. Treasury term loan. 
And ruling on phase two of Sanchez lien litigation, Judge Isger finds liens on three of six challenge leashes may be avoidable. Preference analysis reserved for phase three. Now from Houston, here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thank you. Good morning, everybody. Spring break for a lot of folks this week. And for those of y'all for whom it ain't, here's what you got to look forward to. Tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Monday, March 15th, DS hearing in Fieldwood Energy and Caesar do not go to the Senate. Tuesday, March 16th, cash collateral hearing in Mallon Crowd, exclusivity extension hearing in Garrett Motion. Wednesday, March 17th, second day hearing in Brazos Electric, confirmation hearing in Dean Foods, several hearings related to Intel Sat. Thursday, March 18th, earnings from Petco, where the pets go, omnibus hearing in OSC Communications, and a continued trial in CBL and Associates. Friday, March 19th, we made it, folks. Stay relief motion in Highland Capital, and I'm going to stop right there. Have a good weekend, and back to y'all up in New York or wherever you may be. Thanks, Jim. And now here's our weekly deep dive. We have Peter Washkowitz to discuss agent clawback provisions now appearing in credit agreements. Thanks, guys. By now, I'd imagine most people who are listening to this podcast are familiar with the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York's February 16th ruling that Revlon's term loan lenders who received an errant payment from Citibank were entitled to keep those payments under the doctrine of discharge for value. Um, what most people, what, what some people may not be familiar with, however, is a growing slate of credit agreements that have come out in the last few weeks, either new credit agreements or amendments to existing credit agreements that have new language in it that seems to um, address this, the city's errant uh, payments to Revlon and seeks to uh, provide agents with some protections for situations like this in the future. Um, a lot of the issues in the litigation between Revlon term loan lenders and Citibank involved whether the the lenders were under an obligation or knew or should have known that the payments that they received were mistakes. Um, they concerned how long it was before Citibank notified the lenders about the errant payment. Um, so, you know, it was it was kind of this is a very unique situation, obviously. And so I think the courts were trying to figure out how to approach um how to approach who has responsibility here and who has um, who can most easily ensure that these mistakes do not happen again. Um, anyway, in the this in these uh, in these new credit agreements, uh, one is for Vine Energy, which is uh, issuing a new credit agreement in connection with its uh, initial public offering. Uh, one was an amendment to Eagle Materials' uh, existing credit agreement. Um, the third was to Petco's new refinancing term loan and amended ABL facilities. And the last was um, for a company called Coupang, which is, uh, which is uh, in the middle of its IPO. Um, these provisions provide broad-ranging po uh, powers, uh, provide broad-ranging power to the administrative agent. And in my opinion, uh, goes a little too far in kind of... Um, in allowing these agents to claw back the, the payments. Essentially, what these provisions do, and they're, they're pretty much the same in all four of the credit agreements, is they allow the agents to claw back any funds that they have sent to lenders at any time to the extent the agent determines that the payments were made erroneously. Um, to the extent the agent does notify the lenders that uh, a payment was made erroneously, the lenders have one day to repay those amounts together with accrued interest uh, beginning from when the payment was made. 
regardless of when the notification that the payment was errant was given to them by the agent. Um, effectively, what this does is it allows agents to claw back funds that they have sent to lenders at any time, um, as long as it determines that uh, a payment was made erroneously. So if, a, if an agent made a payment today and a year from now realized uh, either all or a portion of that payment was made erroneously, it could demand the repayment from lenders, including the accrued interest from the year ago date when the payment was made. Um, when, you know, after the, the Windstream situation, when um, Aurelius declared a default for, for, you know, actions that happened well over two years before the default was given, um, most debt documents responded with net short lender and net short holder provisions. When those provisions first got in, first made their way into debt documents, you know, they were, they were very broad. They were, they were put in obviously very hastily. And over time, the, the, the net short provisions were, were refined such that they're now kind of standard language uh, throughout all debt documents. I have a feeling that's what's going to happen with these agent clawback um, provisions because um, I don't think people have necessarily considered all of the impact of these provisions. Um, for one, given that there is no time limit in which the, uh, the agent needs to notify the lenders, um, lenders will never have a sense of whether a payment they received was er was erroneous or not, um, unless the agent proactively um, notifies the lenders that those payments were made properly, which the agent is under no obligation to do. All it has to do is notify lenders that a payment was made erroneously. It does not need to certify that the payment was made properly. So as a lender, whenever you receive a payment, um, you know, there's there's no guarantee you're going to be assured that that it was made properly, and that at some point in the future, you're going to need to repay that amount uh, together with interest. So, uh, you know, effectively, the payment um, becomes a loan from the agent to the lender um, unless or until the agent tells the lenders that the payment was made properly and the lender can do what it wants um, with, the, with the funds that it received. Um, one consequence of this, if you think about it, um, let's say a uh, an interest payment is due on June 30th, and the agent uh, you know sends payment properly on June 30th. However, if it does not certify that that payment was made properly, um, is it really a payment? Because um, lenders who receive that amount, you know, theoretically can't really use that amount since it could be clawed back at any time. Um, and especially because it may need to pay interest on that amount. So if you as a lender receive a payment on June 30th, but the agent does not certify that the payment was made properly, uh, there's there's an argument that the payment was not actually made and that the borrower did not actually make its interest payment. Um, so arguably, these agent clawback provisions could give rise to situations where lenders claim uh, a default for uh, a breach of its payment obligations, even though the lenders receive the payments, um, but because the agent has not certified that those payments were made properly and will not be subject to clawback uh, provisions going forward. Um, anyway, this is just kind of a very brief overview of these provisions. Um, again, they, they are extremely broad and give the agents wide latitude to clawback uh, funds for for any reason, as long as they determine that those funds were 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 made erroneously, 
and the lenders really have kind of no say here. Um, and and the fact that they are going that they would they are need, they are required to to pay interest on the amount um, and and that interest begins accruing from the day it receives the funds. Um, it, it seems like a it seems essentially like a penalty uh, for these lenders. But um, we obviously will stay on top of this situation, and we will um, we will uh, we will probably uh, continue to analyze these provisions as they are refined over time. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks a lot, Peter. And thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. I have a quick promotional note from marketing to plug here. Join America's core credit experts, Anna Lucia Hurtado, Kathy Ta, Karen Lung, and Kyle Owusu on Tuesday, March 16th, 2021 at 12 p.m. Eastern time as they discuss Cedril Limited and Cedril Partners in the latest installment of our webinar series. Our coverage team will provide an overview of the debtors' respective Chapter 11 cases. Thanks. Find all of our podcasts on the reorg.com media page, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud. Hope you're going to help you safe. See you next Friday.